Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. I'm Pete Wright, and I was told this was the German accent episode. Ooh, <laughs> that's really <laughs> well done. <laughs> that's not bad. They're good. Ausgezeichnet. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, today we are talking about Minute 16, which begins with suspicious whispers among the medical staff and ends with Erskine revealing he's a German. Uh-oh. He's also from Queens. Right. You hear some voices in there joining us on the show today. And all week we have Will Johnson and Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast. Welcome to the MMM world, fellas. So excited. So excited to be here, guys. Uh, I, I've, I like to monitor, like look at every single minute and detail of Marvel films to the detriment of probably my dating life and everything else. So I might as well do it for, like, you know, on a podcast. So, right. Sure. Why not? You, you brought the right man. Therapy and all required of both of us. You brought the right man. I'm here to just piss and Cheerios, fellas. We've got the perfect pair. Yeah. Tell us, uh, before we jump into the minute, let's talk a little bit about the Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast. What is that show about? What's uh, Why Hissy Fits? What's going on there? So Will and I, um, we met as uh, writers and editors. Well, he's an editor. I was a writer at 25 Whale. Shout out to 25 Whale. And uh, we started to kind of interact with each other in the inter-office kind of communications that they keep there in Discord and in Slack. And our little arguments of like, you don't know what you're talking about, Don, turned into like social media and Twitter. And we're, and at some point, we kind of saw through each other's kind of guise of the, like straight man and arguing person. And we're like, and the idea came up like, Hey, we should make a show out of this. And 25 well was looking to kind of expand into kind of podcast and audio and other media other than just written and online. And um, yeah, we got, we've got staked and sponsored by 25 well and the ruminations radio network to kind of put our arguments on the air and on the microphone. So our show works where we, uh, we both kind of have a, a title in mind, a movie and uh, there's a lover and a hater and some timed kind of diatribes and then some shared conversation. So we've been spreading it from old stuff to new releases to some deep cuts and some uh, hot takes along the way, had a lot of guests, had a lot of fun and uh, we're going on about a year and a half strong. We're doing really good. Yeah, 71 Absolutely. episodes as of this recording, which is pretty That's right. Good. Yeah. Fantastic. And we've only, and we've only missed one week, I think. And that was, you know, a, right. ho a holiday or something. So we've yeah. been consistent and, and pushing stuff through. And, and as you'll discover on this podcast where, where we're guesting, um, I said to Don, let's do a podcast. Uh, and then I went to go watch Marvel movies or something. And then he came back the next day and had already got like, the website and the name and designed the title and already had all the production stuff ready. He already did the intro and everything. And I just went, Oh, okay, sure. And then, you know, I just, I just, I just kind of show up and argue about stuff. Uh, but Don is really the, uh, he kind of steers. I do the social media, which, you know, yeah. Doesn't that, take that, much. No, but that makes you that makes you heart and soul. I mean, you are the voice of the people. I'm just a good organizer. And between the two of us, it's a good dynamic. So which one of you is the Zola behind the Schmidt then? Oh, right here. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, the Zola. That was a fast. Yeah. You're, fast the, you're the, mad, the yeah. mad scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the he's the guy like, I don't have time for patience. And he's the cr <laughs> he's the not cranker. Yeah. yeah. No, no, he said Yeah, he said uh when we did the podcast, he said this will this will change podcasts. And I said, no, this will change the world. So, <laughs> I don't know why I became a Colombian and that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I want some drugs now. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it's, 
<laughs> I should also add that we do occasionally, and that's how kind of maybe we got on this podcast a little bit. We do uh, here in Phoenix. Don's in Chicago. I'm in Phoenix, so we have a little bit of a time difference. But I have been able and been lucky enough to know some great film people out here in Phoenix, uh, and have had three. We've had three live shows. Unfortunately, you know, Don hasn't been able to come out. We'll get that eventually. We'll get that done eventually. But um, for right now, we've had about three live shows across the valley, and. Uh, we intend to do more. So it's, it's quite an enterprise, you know, podcasts, social media, live shows, guest hosting stuff. It's, it's a fun little, fun little thing. Have you covered any or many films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe on your show? Yeah. Like Iron Man 3 was one of our first fights, like where, okay. where like before when we <laughs> kind of organized the show and we've covered just about every new release of it since then. I'm trying to think we've done a historical one other than Iron Man 3. Oh, the Spider-Man stuff. We did a little. We did like a, um, it's befitting our expectations that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire were going to show up in No Way Home. We kind of did an, um, like a three-part, like we did a Tobey-verse, uh, Garfield-verse, a Venom-verse, and kind of, and then looked at all the Holland ones and you know, see where the leading up to no way home. And then we had an episode on no way home. I know we've done pretty much all of phase four. I know we did black widow eternals. Chi, Shang Chi, Dr. Strange. I don't think we did Shang Chi actually. Did we? Good question. My all, one of my all time favorite MCU films, by the way, because as we were talking off camera, uh, off camera microphone, you know, big Jackie Chan fan. That film was choreographed by a member of the Jackie Chan stunt team uh especially that bus fight is pure jackie chan uh, awesome. all the way all the way to the point of like the guy, him taking off his jacket and putting it back on mid-fight <laughs> but yeah i don't know if we did shang chi but i know we've done pretty much every other phase four release and yeah iron man three uh we did venom but that's not mcu but we did venom sure, uh, sure. and uh we yeah. did, did we do no we did venom before carnage came out we did uh, so we did not do Carnage, and I don't think we've touched Morbius. <laughs> no, no, so no few people have touched yeah. Morbius. <laughs> Correct. So, yeah, we we uh, well, I mean, there's a thing. I, I'm kind of known as the Marvel shill. That's kind of my yes, you are my moniker <laughs> uh, because I go all out to defend these things. I won't go on my soapbox today and bother you guys with it, but I'm a very kind of what another thing that got me started with the podcast, wanting to do it was. Um, Right around the time Scorsese came out and said, you know, Marvel wasn't cinema, I wrote probably one of the best articles I've ever written about yeah, you did. What, what art is and how Marvel fits into that. And I've been very adamant about defending art in all, all kinds of forms, um, especially, especially because growing up, being into comics, being into metal music, uh, being into horror films, like I've always kind of been in the subcultures that are always looked down upon. And Marvel, even though it's huge, it with the elites, you know, it's considered trash. And I always find myself defending quote unquote trash that I don't think is trash actually at the end. But that was another reason why we started the podcast too, is I wanted to get a voice out there for not the voiceless necessarily, since Marvel's the biggest <laughs> franchise in the history of cinema. <laughs> but you know, to give to give a voice, like an alternative voice to maybe some of the elitism and gatekeeping that goes on out there. And yeah, sure. So that's mm -hmm. kind of one, one of my functions on the show. Don't harsh our fandom. 
That's the that's the deal. I would like to say, just as a matter of color commentary, directly to Andy. Do you see, man? Do you see? I'm not the only movie podcaster who forgets the movies that we've done in the past. So lay <laughs> off. Yeah. The, the question was, have you guys done all the Marvel movies? And I go, yeah, Iron Man 3. And yeah. I was done. And, and Bill's like, <laughs> hold on here. Yes, Going through the rest know. of you look like a grandma in church. Like, man. Yep. <laughs> well, and also, we did, I think our fourth episode was... Zack Snyder's 19-hour cut of Justice. Oh. So we did do that mm. one. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously DC, but, you know, mm-hmm. we did. I think that's pretty much the the emphasis of our superhero-dumb on the show. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. It'll increase. We'll get to them. Inevitably, yeah, there's so many. It's hard to it's hard to miss. You kind of throw a stone and you hit another Marvel film. There, there, you know, there are a few. They just get, keep cranking these things out. In They're fact, I think one might fine. have just opened at the time of recording Ooh. this. So, <laughs> plug to the show early. We have a heck of an episode on Thor: Love and Thunder. If you like oh, the dynamic we're talking imagine. about of arguing, we we get it good in that one. There's there's plenty to argue about with that film. I am sure. I am sure. Okay, stop it. I haven't seen it yet. Just I know. Stop. I know. Everybody Everybody okay. It. Okay. Don't tell him about the death scene. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> you just made the list, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have said too much. I've gone too far. <laughs> All right, let's focus our attentions here. We've we're we're looking at the little guy here. We've got Steve. Uh, he has wrapped up his um, his fifth attempt at enlistment here, and uh, things don't s- seem to be going quite as uh, as. Uh, as normally when he just gets a straight up rejection, there is some whispering going on here. Uh, there's a nurse who comes in and is whispering to the doctor. I should say this is the young doctor played by Doug Cockle. Uh, he's got a few lines here and um, Steve seems a little nervous. And then, of course, uh, as the doctor steps out an enlistment office MP steps in, that's played by Ben Bat. And uh, Steve, you know, he's caught. This, I, I think, is kind of the setup that we have here. This is a moment where finally Steve feels like, you know, all of these attempts might have uh, caught up with him. Um, thoughts about the way that this scene is set up? Who would who'd like to say something about this? I, I like. I really appreciate the um, just the the easy cuts and nothing super rapid. But the like you noticed and talked about the switch of personnel, nice and sly. You know, whispers an easy thing. Nothing like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not big barge in the room kinds of stuff. Um, the increased security and nerves, um, the Steve, well, the four layers of Chris playing this part. If you remember how the shrinking works, it's like four different ways they have to cut, shoot this movie to make what you have there. The four different ways Chris and the body double plays the increased security and a little bit of nerves and even the, the uh, production department with the cute signage of the, you know, uh, you know just by the way, <laughs> legal papers will get you in trouble. And then he moves to a place where there's another sign behind him of all the symptoms you can't have to be in the military, which will come into play with the idea of what he is. But um, yeah, I, I like that. Oh crap moment from Steve where, you know, he does have that silently, you know, cause not a line out of, not a, not a line out of Chris, but like put the shoes on, try to get himself together, you know, and, but play it cool if I can, when people walk in the room and it just shows his, his um i guess it shows his toughness like he'll take the blame if he has to but at the same time if i can get away i'm gonna get away no no cowardice but just like i gotta preserve my chance to try again the thing about looking at things minute by minute is you kind of are forced to look at the whole and then see how it plays out in that minute and there's a couple of things on a technical side and a character side that i like about this one minute scene uh, one it, from the character side is that, um, you know, 
Captain America is always kind of portrayed as a, as a boy scout, you know, like a rule follower, but as his arc would progress in future movies. And in this one, I, I like that, you know, he will bend rules to get, to do the right thing. And, and this scene emphasizes that because he is breaking the law, which is something you don't think of Captain America doing uh, by forging things, <laughs> but it's for, <laughs> it's for a uh, good purpose. And that's kind of, that's more of what runs him than his quote unquote, by the book rulemaking is his ability to judge when it is okay to take that step that might bend a rule. But on the technical side, uh, I remember, and this still really holds up really well. Um, I remember when I first saw this movie, uh, when they reveal Captain America, you know, Steve Rogers after the serum, you know, I was so convinced of tiny Steve that I thought the fake, <laughs> you know, I thought Chris Evans with the real body was the fake for a minute because it's just, it's almost unrealistic how buff he is, you know? And, <laughs> and this scene kind of emphasizes the fact that you're not focused. And this is a movie that Marvel movies and a lot of movies that have visual effects have a problem with um, is sometimes you focus too much on the visual effects, but we're so invested in Steve at this point that I'm not sitting there going like, Oh, wow, I wonder how they film that. Or there's these four stages of filming. Like, I'm invested in the character. I believe the character. I believe what's being presented to me that he is literally this 90 pound weakling. I never think about the visual effects really. I'm engaged in the story. And that goes for the maximum view of the movie, but also in the scene specifically. Well, in this scene too, in particular, because it's so antiqued, right? It's that sort of jaundiced like light and uh, the the hospital light that it really obscures even more of the masking that you would otherwise be looking for in the harsh light of of uh, you know uh, principal photography and the rest of the series. I think it's it's just beautiful. To your point, it's it's fantastic. I love that this you bring up this idea about Steve breaking the law, and and it always strikes me that there is that Steve's balance is is a balance between doing individual good and greater good and his efforts here you could make the case that ultimately Erskine discovers him as a tool for the greater good, but everything leading up to this point is individual good he's satisfying his own inner sense of patriotism and ego and uh and and wanting to do the right thing feeling like he's going to stand for the greater good. But ultimately, people like Steve are escorted out of the military because they are counter to the greater good. They generally put more people at risk if they have to be rescued, if they have to whatever. That is an exercise of ego for him to want to defy that. And I love the, this transition that Erskine discovers Here's a kid who has what it takes to test something that might be be useful for the greater good. I think this is a this this set of minutes is a beautiful exercise to that end. It's a good point about the ego element of it, because, I mean, yeah, there is this side to Steve where, I mean, as has been pointed out in the film, he could do like Timmy and just collect scrap metal. Right. I mean, he could just nice be, work. Timmy. He could be doing his part over here uh, in the, on the state side, uh, but he really it, it isn't about helping however he can. He very specifically wants to uh, go overseas and fight Nazis. And uh, there is a little bit of an ego thing, but it is about like he sees this bigger picture of like, I can do more. He believes in himself. And I mean, yes, there is that ego element, but it really is about this this little guy who who is more than 
the sum of his parts. Like when you look at his that list that was on his form, the asthma and everything else, and a lot of these things are on the list behind him. Um, you know, he completely doesn't fit what the army is looking for. But there, it's that mental side of him, and that's what I think is interesting. And we'll certainly talk about that in the next minute. Uh, but in this minute, it's it's just it's a great setup for what's to come of this kid who, uh, you know, as, as Erskine says, so you want to go overseas, you want to kill Nazis, you know, he's he just wanted wanting to, to do, do a little the more. German accent again. There will be no, accents. This movie. Yeah. No, um, the the other thing I I tip my hat to is um, maybe this is the millennial term, but uh, I I. Don't see it as much. I know, I totally get what you guys are saying with ego, but I think it's just the basic level of like FOMO, just fear of missing out. You know, he wants to be yeah, part sure. of that cause. He sees his best friend go across for that cause. I want to be there too, do my part, you know, and you're right. He could collect scrap metal, but the greater FOMO is, you know, serving and having that pride to do so. So I see it more. I get that the ego angle is there, but for me, I soften it down to, to FOMO more than ego. I'll buy that. I, I, I'll buy that. I just, I, I think isn't, isn't FOMO an exercise in ego? Totally. Yeah, definitely. For sure. <laughs> but like, not like, oh, I need to be a soldier. You know, it's not yeah. la- but the I, largest no, no, no. And I, I, It's on I the scale. More archety- archetypically, like it is, a, it is a motivator. And that's kind of where I'm going. Like what is motivating? It's coming from his own sort of internal need to serve his internal needs. And, and I, I don't necessarily see that as an exercise of, of bravado at all. That's never anything I get from Steve at any size. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, well, it's funny. It's funny too. There's a little undercurrent going on. I was just thinking about this because I recently, uh, watched this and winter soldier, uh, showing my dad, um, and he ended up liking them and he doesn't like Marvel stuff. But, uh, another undercurrent about this is, you know, World War II kind of has this um, necessary evil quality to it. You know, like, this is something that must be done because this mm-hmm. evil must be stopped. You know, the evil can be defined a little bit more. Sure. And um, and one thing I, I think that they examine more in the sequels, uh, we don't talk a lot about propaganda. You know, like, you know, he... I never get the feeling that he's been manipulated. He's got a good heart like he's doing, you know, but he is reading into the idea that like you must serve and must do, you know, what's right. And I, what I like about that is, you know, he sees this as a necessary evil or fight. And then when you get to Winter Soldier where, you know, they're trying to do the project that will eliminate targets before the crimes are committed, kind of like a little minority report kind of thing. You know, he's not buying that propaganda, won't play with that. And uh, so I'm anxious to see, I mean, Marvel, like trying to get the four quadrants, isn't going to go too deep into, <laughs> into the effects <laughs> of propaganda and and mm-hmm. things like that. This is more of a feel good hero story. Yeah. But I do I do find that an interesting aspect uh, that the comics have had to deal with, too, because, you know, there was a time when once Captain America was dead for a while, they brought him back to fight communists. And that quite didn't catch on with the with the populace because it wasn't exactly like a quote unquote necessary evil and then they bring him back you know just it's something that what the character represents i've seen a lot of like uh not to dip into politics but you know i'll see a lot of uh can cannonball in the pool here he goes let's, let's see <laughs> let, let's see let's see okay. people that let's see people that lean a certain direction uh you know which like, one will <laughs> let's just say, that. Let's just say that they lean either left or right we we'll, i'll let you oh. guess but like you know they'll see they'll use captain america as a propaganda symbol of like americanism they sure and will then, and then forget what he actually stands for you know so i find the whole idea of 
that what you're talking about, maybe the FOMO, the wanting to do the right thing, the ego, the, you know, choosing, like what I said about, you know, breaking the law when it's necessary, necessary evils. I find that a very interesting drama at play, especially with a symbol like Captain America, you know, what he represents to different people. Well, and I think this is that's an excellent tip because, you know, what we have here is the little guy driven by his need to participate. Right. And then what happens when you give the little guy strength and with that strength comes agency and with agency comes Winter Soldier. Right. Like that. That to me is an exercise of now I have power and authority to actually make decisions that that, you know, about the policies of the people that I normally serve. And and I think that's that's a fantastic arc. And this is the movie about about the first part. Yeah. About, and, and and we're at the very beginning of yeah. that whole part. So we're yeah. just kind of dipping our toes into the water of all this. So I have a question for, for all of you. We came into this, you know, we saw that Erskine, for whatever reason, is hanging out at the enlistment uh, center here at the at the expo. Um, and he hears, he overhears uh, Steve and Bucky having this conversation about why Steve wants to serve and all of this sort of stuff. And, um, what do you think of the way is, is Erskine just kind of like, is this whole thing a test? Is he just playing with him to have him go through uh, the actual process of, of actually, you know, going, you know, seeing a doctor and all this, as opposed to just kind of talking to him from the beginning? Like, why does he go through this to actually like have Steve go sit with the doctor, do the physical and then have the doctor and the nurse leave have an MP come in all before he comes in. Is is he just toying with him or is this also part of his test? I buy it too as a test, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I would say so because, well, a couple of things. He has his files ready to go. So I, I do think that, you know, he's a Erskine saw these patterns and, and maybe he didn't know who Steve was and just happened to cross him at the fair or whatever. But, you know, he had the file ready that said like, oh, you tried five times to do this. I mean, I'm sure you can't just find that. There's probably literally a million people trying to enlist. Um, so I, I think he had some knowledge of who Steve was, but also... You mean before he even showed up here, like he already was kind of like tracking this guy? Well, because, I mean, like I said, I mean, just logically, it seems like he would because he had the file ready. I mean, ah, okay. I, just, I just have the idea that there's so many people enlisting. Like, sure. they're just going to have that file at the fair. Like, he's he was aware of that and just maybe if he happened to bump into him, that's one thing. Or if he's been tracking him, that's another they, they leave that up in the air. It's not totally important, but it is. It's, it is definitely a test of all of reactions. Like, how far is he willing to go? Is he willing to play this until he gets caught? Because he's tried it five times and hasn't been caught, you know. And is he willing to do it a sixth time? What's his reaction when he sees an MP or what's his? You know, like there's sure all kinds of um, decision making in this one minute that he has to make. Does he cut and run? Does he fight and run? Does he? sit there and make up excuses. You know, he tries at first, you know, he's like, Oh, it's the wrong file guys, you know, but you know, then, you know, he, he realizes where he is and he, and we'll find out the next minute, you know, he might as well state his case of what, what he stands for. It's an interesting, I, I hadn't thought of that, that, that he had kind of been tracking Steve. So that's an interesting um, uh, way to kind of view that. I, I, I guess I was thinking that maybe he was interested in this guy, got his name and then like had the 
the exam drag on so that he could collect his file. But it is a lot of stuff to track, especially considering um, that theoretically they wouldn't have known that this is a person who's tried uh, four times before. So um, it certainly is an interesting uh, uh, way of viewing that. It uh, is the only way of viewing it that that deal that addresses my criticism of why Erskine was sitting at the World's Fair in the first <laughs> yeah, place. Right. Like, it's so dumb that he's sitting in this, like, rando recruitment office. The top scientist for the military is is sitting in this rando recruitment office. If he's not tracking Steve, why would he have all of the files? No computers, kids. Like, they, they, they weren't tracking. It was paper recruitment files. Why would he have all those files on him if he wasn't tracking him? Also keep in mind... Uh, uh, Stark is there, and Stark yep. is kind of a, at that point, a, what would be a private contractor of yep. of yep. what yep. would become Shield. So it's kind of a, yeah. you know, and he's there. Maybe they're working on it. I, I would assume that for the Super Soldier Serum project, they've got to have backups or other ideas, um, and maybe Stark's working with them on that. Maybe he's checking out other stuff. Maybe there's other like that tests of strength, but. I don't know. I, there's ways to read into it, but I think I think yeah. in the end it, it was he'd been tracking him, maybe not knowing exactly what he looked like, but tracking him based on the paperwork. And um, yeah, because he cause he implies he implies later because he does seem rather adamant about Steve. If that was the first time he had heard of him, yeah. There's a there's a scene much later with Tommy Lee Jones where he's like, "Why are you sticking with this guy?" I mean, I, I know a lot of people write him off immediately when they look at him, but he seems very adamant. And I, I would feel like a scientist would, you know, have that the hypothesis going and and uh, keep that keep that in mind at all times. I guess I, I don't know. I I do, get, I do get a sense that he tracked him. Well, and we'll we'll be able to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow because, to your point, he will he'll say something about why he was drawn to Steve's file, and so uh, so that will definitely be interesting. I think what what softens and, and helps all this out is this is you know Tucci's chance to introduce himself, and it's such a disarming, charming way of just doing the hey, where are you from? Commonalities, you know, because that it's not to say that people don't do that anymore, but that's a 1940s thing to do like my grandpa you know ask everybody like we would go on vacations and he would go to like rest areas and stuff like that where you just normally just try to get in pee get your brochures and get out my grandpa the dairy <laughs> farmer from iowa or from illinois is like he asked complete strangers oh, it's like, hey, where are you from you know like just sure he'll get into that yarn where that's just what those people from that era do so for that to kind of do the whole queen's introduction germany name dropping thing it's just a disarming thing and he, and to have that kind of spin from that first test question of oh so you want to kill nazis and steve's answer is excuse me which is i think telling to where his character already is going but at the same time the disarming introduction from erskine helps helps that 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 oh crap moment go away for Steve, I guess. Well, and it's and you're right. He's so kind. Like that's something that I love about the way Stanley Tucci plays this character is there's just this this uh this kindness that he exudes about the way that he just introduces himself even. It's just saying his name. I represent the Strategic Scientific Reserve, which we'll talk about here in a sec. Just and the way he approaches like when Steve says where are you from and the whole thing with Queens and everything. It, I don't know, he just sounds like a nice guy and and he very much puts 
the audience and Steve uh, kind of takes them off their guard. Like you don't have to worry anymore. Like we we're we're in a safer space now, and I, I really love the way that he kind of brings it brings that in. It also is a minor callbacks, but emphasizing where he's from, you know, the pride of where he's from. They play with that later in Civil War when he's like, you got heart, kid. Where are you from? And Spider-Man's like uh, Queens. And he's like, I have Brooklyn, you know, like <laughs> I like that, that there's that part of that character that, you know, cause a lot of these people you don't like, I mean, maybe there is an explanation. I'm just forgetting off the top of my head, but you know, I, I don't know where Tony Stark was born. You know, I don't know where, you know, I don't know where Bruce Banner was born. That New York is is definitely a part of his identity, uh, and yeah. those boroughs yeah. are very important. I like that. I like that part. Good call. Absolutely. Um, before we get into uh, kind of the the strategic scientific reserve and the address and or the cross streets in Queens, I just wanted to run through a few things on the poster behind. I did find it interesting. I was doing some uh, research into kind of like. Um, what the army and the navy and everything like would look at as far as the standards of their different services and you know i didn't realize this but the army actually had no restrictions for colorblindness you could be colorblind in the army but you couldn't in the navy um they also had different height differences like for the mar the army you had to be between 60 and 78 inches uh the navy was like 62 and 76 inches or that was the minimums uh and maximums and so they had all these differences but there were a lot of commonalities and i, I do think it's interesting looking at the list behind them. And I suppose it just says you must inform the medical officer if you have any of the following. And I suppose it's like, if you are colorblind, well, you can go into the army, but you can't go into the Navy, etc. But the one that caught my eye, I mean, there's a bunch of things on here like diphtheria, epilepsy, glaucoma, heart disease, uh, some of the things I understand. But then there's also chronic rash or pimples. If, hmm. if, you, if you're having pimples, um, yeah. we need to discuss this because... It may affect your entry into the military. Pimples don't Did serve. Did any of you? Pimples don't serve, sir. No. Um, yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a boil on your pride of America. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's a sign of a dominant force, you know, um, that has the ability to make as much perfect soldiers as possible. I guarantee yeah. you in the latter stages of the war in Japan, they're not going to be. You know, saying like, "Ah, oh, you got pimples. We can't go." They're going to take any able yeah. body person they yeah. can. So, I think we're at a point where, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's what what year is the forty two? Right, we're in forty three right now. Forty three. Uh, okay. Flag so, day. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, uh, America is making headway in European theater. You know, Japan was kicking our butts for about a year you know, in the Pacific, but we were starting to turn that around. So I, you know, I would say that this is the marshalling of a dominant force. You got strong allies at this point. You could be selective on, yeah, uh, right, right. on who you're, who's in your army, but I'm sure it would be a little bit different if things were a lot more dire, you know? Well, again, obviously, I mean, you know, eventually they'll get to a point where they are just saying, Hey, you random person, you're now serving. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't even checking. I mean, eventually they probably would would tell some people, sorry, you can't actually serve. But there was a point at where they had to start becoming much less uh, uh, restrictive on in in who was going to actually get to serve. So, uh, so it is interesting to kind of see this though. Um, cinema has a lot of interesting scenes of like the people in control of that. I always think of two movies in particular. I think of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, where Mr. Potter. Uh, is an evil guy and he's just like i'm sending george bailey to the war you know like even though he's a 47 year old high school student and uh and then i 
And then I think of Pearl Harbor, which is the one where they talk about colorblindness or mm-hmm. he's unable to read. I think Ben Affleck can't read or he's got bad vision. As long as you just get a hot nurse to kind of give you a hint at the, what the letters are, you can fly a plane. So um, I like, there's a more realistic <laughs> approach to, mm-hmm. and per- perhaps a historically accurate approach in this film to yeah, re- yeah. reprocess. I always, I always go back to Tom Hanks in A League of Their Own, you know, who's a bitter person because he wasn't able to serve or had to leave because he, you know, had done something to his leg. And he's like, you don't need your leg to fight Nazis. You just need your trigger finger. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that whole thing. It's like, yeah, I mean, this this was definitely the era of that. And it speaks to, again, going back to Steve and his need to serve, need to kind of help be a part of that. But it's all it's all kind of part of that mentality of the time. It is. It's a fascinating one that I've, I've always loved digging into history with especially in terms of Hollywood uh, too, like movies, because, you know, one of the most controversial ones is someone who would not uh, uh, fight in the war, which was John Wayne, you know, who eventually became like the symbol of manliness and jingoism and American heroism. (laughs) But he was like considered, especially by John Ford, like a coward for not wanting to, you know, like you talk to a lot of people, it's, it's almost like I said, that necessary evil part, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of parts, you know, where if someone chooses not to do it now, it's like, good for you. <laughs> like, but back then it was like, you had to do it. You know, it, it really, it really, uh, and, and I think what the movie, I think what many modern audiences might not understand too, is that you could be drafted. So for you to enlist when there's a draft, I mean, you're basically saying like, I'm not even going to take chance that I get in. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that is another uh, step of, I don't know if you want to call it heroism, but you know, like you're choosing to do that. Yeah. Most yeah. people did not choose to do this. You right. Know? Right. So that's, that's another step in the, the level of perhaps uh, selflessness or heroism and that, that he's trying to get in. And there's some kids later or earlier that were forced to be in. And it definitely shifts over time, you know, v- World War II versus uh, now, I suppose. Like, if you're yeah, going now. to get enlisted in the Army, it's like, what what is the, the mentality of somebody enlisting in the Army now? Is it just kind of like that that jingoism, I just want to be you know, a soldier, I want guns? You like, Or is it like, I just need to get into college and I need a, a scholarship sort of um, thing. There's you know? a lot of dark aspects of that because um, as we discovered, especially during, you know, the Bush years, uh, a lot of it is targeted recruitment, you know, going for sure. disadvantaged youth, minorities, ones that unfortunately don't have uh, a lot of options or outlets just because of the way the system works. So they're just like, Hey, cannon fodder. You know, um, so there is a lot of dark darkness to why a lot of people, of course, there's honor and respect for military people. Don't get me wrong, but sure, there, sure, there's sure. also a lot of uh, interesting dy- social dynamics at play for how they recruit armies now, as opposed to them. Like you said, back then, you know, they had no idea if, you know, we were all going to be speaking German or Japanese or Italian. You know, it was a it was a right. legitimate threat i always think of the norm mcdonald joke where he says like uh you know uh germany uh decided to uh fight the world and they almost won you know like it's <laughs> it's kind of funny because you know like they were i mean for such a small country i mean they were such a powerful force you had no idea what was gonna happen so yeah yeah, yeah. well so 
let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about this strategic scientific reserve. This is where uh, Abraham, Dr. Erskine says he works. He represents the strategic scientific reserve. Um, what is your uh, understanding of this? Like, I mean, at this moment in the movie? Well, no, just like, Will, you've read comics or, or Don, I don't know if you, you've read any of the comics too, but did you already have a sense like when he says strategic scientific reserve, did, was that like that, the little flag going off that's that, that got you all excited when you heard that in the movie? Like I know no. a lot of people did in, in Iron Man when, uh, when Coulson you know, brings up shield. Yeah. It was this one of those moments. No, it was gobbledygook for me. Like, Oh, SSR. <laughs> cool. Let's go. Yeah. I, it's. As befitting the MCU, and the reason why it's so successful, which shocks me, is because a lot of the characters they use in the comics were considered B or C level. Uh, so I never, I didn't read a lot of Captain America. I didn't read a lot of Iron Man. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these characters that have become the figureheads of the franchise, you know, were sure. not exactly like top tier. All the top tier stuff that everyone read: Fantastic Four, Spider Man, X Men. Those were all sold off to other companies. So the so yeah, I, I did not have a super well versed history of Captain America. Uh, so nothing I didn't. I was just like, oh, okay, sure, he's going to the thing where he gets the thing. <laughs> That's all <laughs> right. I was thinking. So, well, Pete, did what did you think when when he said that? Did it uh, trigger anything for you, or did you did it make you think? Oh, this must be early Shield. Yeah, you know, uh, probably. But yeah. uh, in over the course of talking about these movies for so many years now, I feel like I've been reprogrammed and my entire memory of this movie has been retconned by what I've learned since. I don't <laughs> think I I had any sense uh, that SSR would become uh, would would have become shield at the time. I think I was I was, you know, plausibly ignorant. I, yeah, I, I don't I didn't know what it was, but just the fact that strategic is in it, I suppose yeah. <laughs> my my brain probably said, oh, this must be like the early version of yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D. It sounds like one of those sort of acronyms that they would say. If only because Coulson said it so many times in Iron Man, like th <laughs> right. that feels like uh, connective tissue. Right, exactly. Um, I guess SSR was a top-secret Allied war agency uh, it formed in 1940 by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, to battle HYDRA, the Nazi Special Weapons Division, and eventually it would uh, battle with the Soviet uh, division Leviathan and the Council of Nine, and eventually would actually become a part of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just learned all that as I've kind of done research, but it is interesting where it does feel like one of those S.H.I.E.L.D. sorts of things. And I suppose this is this mysterious person who's hanging around in the recruitment centers. It just seems like he's probably some representative of some secret government organization and it fits. It yeah. just fits, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That, that's where we are. Um, all right. And then he tells Steve, uh, you know, I love the line. Steve asks him where he's from specifically because kind of he has this accent, right? And he's mm -hmm. like curious. I mean, this is the time, you know, we're battling the Germans. You sound a little German. And uh, I, I love the way that this plays off, where, where he asks him, where are you from? And he says, Queens, 73rd Street and Utopia Parkway. Uh, I know uh, a few of you did some digging on that on that cross streets. Uh, Pete, what did you find out about 73rd Street and Utopia Parkway? Sadly, there's no 73rd Street and Utopia Parkway. It is 73rd Avenue that does appear to exist. 
in Queens. <laughs> Blow uh, it up. Cinema Sins. Thanks a right? lot, Marvel. Very <laughs> much feels like they've done. But I'll tell you what, like at the northeast corner of 73rd uh, Avenue and Utopia Parkway is a paved uh, playground, couple of basketball courts, looks like stickball court uh, in there. The other three corners are all like, you know, connected homes, uh, walk-ups. Like it feels very much like he could have been from here. Like this is this was the corner they were looking at when they when they changed it from avenue to street. You know what I'm saying? Like it really does. It doesn't feel like, oh, now it's just like there's a Starbucks on the corner. It feels very much like a home. I just uh, looked at it on there, Google yeah. Maps. There's a TJ Maxx, which you could probably find a shirt from this movie somewhere. <laughs> true. It's right. like, you know, yeah. somewhere in the, in the stack of clothes. At the TJ Maxx. Mm-hmm. There's some weird meta something going on there. Yeah, oh, right. Meta shopping trip to, to the corner of 73rd <laughs> Avenue Utopia Parkway. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, you know, it, it is one of those things. There's been a lot of that with this, um, of, of putting in those, uh, you know, Avenue versus street or kind of those little, sh- those little shifts. So, sure. uh, it's really no surprise that they, that they would do something like that, but, um, great little moment. I, I, that's kind of the end of the minute. We have yeah. this moment, uh, revealing that he is from Germany and that's it. Uh, any other thoughts about what's going on this minute from any of you? Uh, for me, it's um. I did read about casting where um, Tucci really took this movie on because he wanted to do a German accent. He had never done a German <laughs> right. accent, and that was kind of one of the selling points of this movie for him. He was coming out of like Lovely Bones, you know, doing small scale stuff and like Devil Wears Prada, where this was a nice bump for him to do something fun. And I think it's kind of in this movie, especially, kind of starts that. Um, I feel like the trend for Marvel increased starting from here on of hiring really good supporting actors for small parts just to kind of you know bolster that poster you know bolster that poster uh, poster i should say and just kind of that that depth of the movie because you could get anybody to play this part you know to kind of be the scientist that gets killed off in 30 minutes but but the fact that it's tucci who is as i said before super disarming guy um but yet at the same time he has that twinkle in his eye where if he had to be an evil person for the two seconds that steve wonders he's evil he could pull it off too uh, but yeah, Tucci being very ethnically ambiguous uh, as a European American is kind of fun. That he took he took the part to do German. I'm like, oh, I never would have thought of that. I also think as a minor student of World War II history, I think it casts Steve in a very good light because more so with the Japanese, but also with Italians and Germans, there was um, a lot of the alien, the other. That you can group everyone together. So if there's Germany, it must be bad. And I like that yeah. uh, Steve is just like, oh, I, got, I don't have any problems with that you're German. You know, um, kind of feeds into his ethos that he's a little bit above, you know, falling for the, I don't know, the company line or the propaganda that the other is automatically an enemy. So, I mean, like I said, we're maximizing one little minute, but mm-hmm. something you can read into the character a little bit. Yeah. His, uh, sure, his sure. same thing, his body language, like I said, either the, the body double or Chris sitting there, his like, does, do you have a problem with that? And his little, uh, like just the way he rolls his shoulders ever so slightly, just in a, you know, he wasn't a still like, no, or it wasn't like a, uh, no, it was just, right. you, know, you know, I just love the body language, small little tick, but worth it. Very, yeah, very smart, very mild little shrug. So mm-hmm. he shrugs it off. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Pete, any last thoughts from you? 
Oh, I'm ready. Let's do it. I want to see the next minute. Like yeah, next minute. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Next minute's going to be a good one. All right. Well, that's it for uh, for today's episode, everybody. Um, once again, Don and Will, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, remind everybody again where they can find your podcast and more about you. You can look us up at Cinephile Hissy Fit. You'll find that on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and of course, Apple, Spotify, anywhere you find your favorite shows. Uh, also give a little love to the 25 Well, who sponsors us as a post, um, and also uh, the Ruminations Radio Network, where we are part of a very good network of very, very good podcasts and shows. That is fantastic. Thanks, guys. Well, uh, check that out, everybody. Uh, they've got a lot of great stuff to uh, to listen to and to read and to dig into. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow with another minute of, of this show. We'll be looking at Minute 17. So, for now, until next time, True Believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.